Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Got a prescription? More than one, maybe. Keep your blood pressure or your cholesterol down or your hay fever at bay or something more serious. If you do, how much does it cost? Not you necessarily, but the NHS. The drugs we take for granted are expensive to develop, but eventually, and once out of copyright, should cost very little per prescription to our health services. So what if a company came along and bought the rights to manufacture a particular drug and started charging double or triple or even 10,000 times as much for the exact same product? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today and tomorrow, we're taking a deep dive into the world of sick money. Today, part one, gouging the price. This summer, the Competition and Market Authority, the CMA, whose job it is to promote competition for the benefit of consumers, announced record fines for two drug companies. One in particular was a biggie, £260 million for breaches of competition law in relation to the supply of hydrocortisone tablets. The CMA found the price had risen by over 10,000%. That the CMA were investigating was partly due to... Billy Kember, an investigations reporter at The Times. Billy's work on price hiking by drug companies is the subject of his new book out this week. The book is called Sick Money, The Truth About the Global Pharmaceutical Industry. It's taken me about two years to research and write it, and before that, another three years or so in which I worked on a series of stories for The Times in this area about drug pricing. Sick Money is about what's happened to the pharmaceutical industry in the last few years. How it's become more financially focused and financially driven and the effect that that has had on the kinds of medicines we get, how much we pay for them, whether we can access them, and the problems that are developed even in some of the richest countries in the world where patients are going without life-saving drugs purely on financial grounds. The book also looks at a particular business model, the one that led to the CMA fines the rise and fall of what can probably be described as a price-hiking business model. And we follow a particular entrepreneur in in Canada who then buys a large British company and we can see what happens to the medicines and the patients affected in that gold rush. Essentially, that's the process you call price gouging. Exactly that. Now, just in very general terms, before we go into any kind of specifics, while you were doing the pieces upon which got you interested in then going the whole hog and writing the book. Were you actually affected or shocked by what you discovered, or was it pretty much what you'd expected? 
I was pretty shocked by what I discovered in terms of the brazenness of some of it, the scale of it, and how long it had been going on without anything being done about it or seemingly anyone really noticing. But some of these examples of things that I discovered were affecting people in life or death situations and the kind of callousness of market forces and decisions by business executives and so on in some of those scenarios was genuinely quite shocking. On the 3rd of June 2016, the front page of The Times carried a story with the headline, Extortionate prices add £260 million to NHS drug bill. The article was the first in what would become a series of investigations by Billy into a sharp practice. Way back now, in early 2016, a colleague of mine suggested that the pharmaceutical industry would be a good area to take a look at, and in particular something called pay for delay, which is a phenomenon we've seen quite a lot in the US where companies have a big branded product coming to the end of its life and they pay another company to not launch a a rival version, a a generic version for a number of years. And in the meantime, they continue to enjoy their monopoly and they they sort of usually split the profits for that period. Sorry, can I just stop you there to make sure that I understand that? Is it because our patent's running out on this product, but if you then don't take it up and start making it, we'll give you some money so that we can carry on making it alone? Exactly. You stay out of the market and we'll split the profits of the benefit of that. I started looking for that in the UK, really, and going about that by getting hold of as much of the data as I could of pricing and sales and and so on in in the UK market and and quickly looking through something called the drug tariff, which is a, a monthly document produced by the NHS, which lists for a large number of their drugs, how much they reimburse pharmacists for. And so it's a a good proxy for how much drugs are costing and and how those are changing month to month. And as I started to look through this data, I began to realise there were a lot of drugs that had had very large price rises, in some cases of thousands of percent. And then the more I began to look at those and to build up a picture of those, I started to realise this wasn't just one-off examples of a drug where maybe there'd been a shortage or a manufacturing problem, or for whatever reason, the price had needed to rise. This was a a concerted pattern. And not only that, the same companies were behind it each time. So what you're saying is you did something which I presumed the authorities would do, which was that you looked down and saw what the patterns of changes in charging were and where they were very significantly different. And you found a lot. The authorities and political bodies and so on were aware of the odd price rise in the past. And sometimes a a drug had gone up so much it had drawn attention, but they'd always been seen as as one-off, as isolated cases. And and the authorities had basically taken the view that the market is generally working. You might have the odd outlier, but that's not a major problem. But what quickly became apparent was both the scale of this problem. There were initially at least 70 drugs I identified that had had huge increases and and fitted a, a particular pattern, but also that there were the same companies coming up again and again often they were the only supplier. And it gradually became clear to me that some of these companies had focused as a business model on identifying old drugs that they could buy the license to and then increase the price. Let's focus on hydrocortisone, the drug I mentioned earlier. So hydrocortisone is a very old steroid treatment. It's quite commonly used. It's particularly used for patients with Addison's disease. Addison's disease is a rare disorder which affects around 8,500 people in the UK and is caused by a problem with the hormone-secreting adrenal gland. In people with Addison's disease, these glands don't produce enough of the hormone cortisol. The condition is quite easily treated using a replacement for the natural hormone, hydrocortisone. 
What had happened with this drug, as was common with a lot of the other drugs I looked at, is that it had previously been sold under a brand name when it was made by one of the big pharmaceutical companies, uh, the, you know, the sort of household name level of companies. It had been divested at, at one point and it had ended up in the hands of a much smaller British company who had dropped the brand name and relaunched it as what's known as an unbranded generic, so selling it under its generic sort of scientific name. In the process of doing that, they were able to circumvent the profit cap that the NHS applies to branded drugs. And unbranded drugs don't have any profit cap and they don't have any price regulation at all because the NHS relies on market forces to keep those prices down. Normally, generic drugs are uh, things like aspirin or paracetamol with lots of manufacturers and they're sold at, at commodity prices effectively. But in this case, the company was able to increase the price and over time, the, the price of that drug rose from about 70 pence to uh, 88 pounds a packet. So a, a huge increase. I think if I recall rightly, it was 70 pence as late as 2008. I think that's right. Yes. And it had risen to, remind me again? It rose to a peak of 88 pounds a packet. That was in about 2016. Over the course of eight years, a packet that had cost the NHS 70p had gone up to 88 pounds. So this is a drug that had been costing the NHS approximately half a million pounds a year. And, and at its peak, was costing the NHS in the region of £80 million a year. So a, a huge increase in cost. And how was that possible? Why hadn't somebody turned around and said, no, that's a bit of a big price rise, we're not paying it? So hydrocortisone is actually a sort of illuminating example in that respect, because hydrocortisone is the one drug that had been highlighted in the past. And in fact, there had been a tabloid newspaper in, in 2010 who had put this price rise on their front page and had confronted the businessman Amit Patel, who owned the company that, that was the only UK manufacturer at that point. And he had said there would have been manufacturing costs, that's why the price had gone up, but don't worry, the price will now go down. That wasn't the case. And, and over the following years, the price continued to rise. And he, in fact, sold his company for £300 million in 2015, and the new owners in, increased the price further still. So the government, uh, Department of Health, uh, were sort of asleep at the wheel on this one. They were aware of the price rise of hydrocortisone for years and, and did nothing about it. Here you've got a company that essentially takes over an existing drug. The drug is going generic. In other words, the patent on it has expired, but they somehow take it over, rebrand it or unbrand it, and then flog it at a much higher level. Now, tell me one thing about a company like this. Does it actually add anything to the product? They would argue that they are doing a service by keeping the product on the market, that often the argument is made that these products were previously loss-making or certainly not hugely profitable. There are costs around pharmacovigilance and other requirements of drug manufacturers that mean there are ongoing costs to keeping a drug available and that they're therefore doing a service to patients who need this drug by continuing to supply it. That's the argument that is made. Well, let's take the hydrocortisone and the Patel's case. How does that company come into being? What does it actually do? How does it make its money? And does it actually, in any significant sense, provide a service? So let's talk about the genesis of the company and its development. On McKenzie, which is the company that was set up by Amit Patel and his sister, I think at the suggestion of their father, a pharmacist, and it initially worked to bring new generics to the UK, often uh, injectable products, often quite difficult to manufacture. And it sort of uh, pootled along, if you like, with a number of drugs that were being sold that were reasonably profitable, but nothing of the sort we've seen with hydrocortisone. Once the price of hydrocortisone rose to the extent it did, and other companies saw that there wasn't any action being taken by the authorities, this strategy spread and was adapted much more widely. And, and at that point, private equity companies became involved and there were new companies created, which in some cases 
appear to have been largely focused on carrying this out at scale on as many old drugs as they could identify. I think this is really important because what you've identified, therefore, is an industry of companies that exist to take cheap drugs and make them really expensive. In Auden McKenzie's case, they had done some research, certainly in the earlier years, to acquire these licenses for more difficult to manufacture drugs. But some of the newer companies that came along to apply this strategy were doing no conventional research and development at all. They weren't looking to develop new drugs. They were simply exploiting these old drugs as financial assets. The fact that they were were pharmaceuticals was almost an afterthought. In the case of the Patels and Old McKenzie, did they get rich on it? Old McKenzie was sold for £300 million in 2015, and the liabilities for the hydrocortisone case passed to the buyer, which was activists, a larger company. So certainly Amit Patel and his sister are, are now very wealthy, and they would argue that the value of that sale wasn't linked to hydrocortisone, that it was all these other products they had and that they'd made that money fairly and reasonably. But certainly that was a large price to be paid for that company when it was sold. And several of the other companies that uh, I identified and I wrote about have also been sold in some cases for billions of pounds. And as Benny mentioned, by the time Auden McKenzie was selling hydrocortisone, the original developer's patent had run out and it had become a generic drug. So there's no intellectual property protection in the way there are for new medicines where you get a patent and you have a period of monopoly. Other companies can come in and acquire licenses for generics. It, it takes one to two years, the degree of investment needed. It's, it's a complicated process where you have to put together a dossier and show that your generic is the same as the other one on the market. But it can be done. So for some of these companies, explaining why price rises were as extreme as they were, that they may have felt there was a, a relatively short window in which to profit. In other cases, as with hydrocortisone, as we later discovered, there were deals struck to keep rival companies out of the market. So that very thing I was originally looking for and initially didn't find, a sort of pay-for-delay deal, does seem to have happened with hydrocortisone, for example, where payments were made to two other companies in 2011 and, and 2012 to keep them out of the market for that drug and prices remained as high as they were. That deal to stop others from producing hydrocortisone was one of the reasons the fine imposed on Alden McKenzie was so high. The other thing which I think it's probably certainly fair to mention is that some of these companies have said that at least a proportion of the price rise of products was initiated by wholesalers and that wholesalers increased the price and then they matched it. Now it's worth saying that's only a proportion in this sort of wider trajectory, but it nevertheless, it does appear that in at least some cases wholesalers have had a role, obviously for them whatever their cut of a drug in a percentage terms is larger if that drug is more expensive. So not only did the Patels and Old McKenzie take this product and make it very expensive, they would argue that they, in some sense, continue to make it available in a way into the market that it might not have been before. But then they also acted to try and make sure that nobody else came into the market, in other words, to minimise their own risk. Exactly that, yeah. So essentially, they passed on the whole thing to the National Health Service and to the taxpayers who fund the National Health Service. It's ultimately taxpayers that footed the bill for this. Did any of them seem to threaten you with legal action after the first article? Certainly, I think we had several threats of legal action. I mean, that's certainly not uncommon in my line of work or kind of whatever area subject it is I'm writing about. The reaction of the Patels and I think this was broadly true of, of most of the companies I was writing about, was initially quite aggressive legal firm that they were arguing that didn't understand how drug pricing worked, didn't understand 
what it was we were writing and then that they hadn't really done anything wrong. And I don't think any of the companies have ever really acknowledged wrongdoing even now. I mean, those two sets of fines from July are being appealed and I'm sure those cases will last a long time. There were some unusual phone calls. I think at one point there was someone pretending to be a journalist from a, a fictional Asian newspaper writing about how the Times' courage had been racist because we'd illustrated a story with a photo of Adamic Patel and he's a British Asian. But this stuff in a way is a sign that you're on the trail of something worthwhile and that people are putting up that much of a fight to sort of stop you and, and slow you down, then that's sort of the reason in itself to keep going. Coming up, what other companies were up to. But first... Hi, I'm Matthew Campbell, Foreign Features Editor at the Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news and enjoy finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Let's talk a bit about what other companies were doing, which other companies were doing what roughly and what kind of drugs they were doing it to. There were several other British companies who sort of really focused on this model and in most prominence in my mind is a company that was called Amco, Amdefarm Mercury, which was created by the private equity house Sinvin when they bought two companies and merged them. That company, we actually managed to obtain some presentations they'd done for potential investors and at healthcare industry conferences in which they outlined in fairly explicit detail what they called a price optimization strategy and how they would identify drugs with limited or no competition, there'd be high barriers for other people to come in either because they were difficult to manufacture or because they were initially quite small markets and so they weren't considered that valuable. And then they would do this debranding trick and, and the prices would rise significantly. It affected a whole host of drugs, I mean, at least uh, 70 drugs that I've identified, generally older drugs that are taken by a group of patients who are on them for life and therefore you have a sort of stable patient base you don't need to worry about paying for drug reps or advertising or anything like that you've got a sort of guaranteed market that will 
lasts a number of years, basically until these patients die. This same approach was actually applied to, to some cancer drugs as well. So there was a South African company that bought the rights to a number of cancer drugs from GSK and then went around Europe trying to significantly increase the price of those drugs. In the UK, the branding trick was helpful. In Spain, they weren't happy with the price that the authorities were offering. Emails revealed the company were prepared as a negotiation tactic to let stock sit in a warehouse until its use-by date expired. And there were also supply problems in Italy when negotiations were going on, which the competition authorities there suspected were an attempt to apply pressure to the Italian authorities to accept these price rises. So, of course, this is happening in several countries and they're being affected. Is there evidence that the drug companies realised that the impact of their actions was to significantly increase the amount that public health bodies were having to spend or that patients, in some cases, were having to spend on necessary drugs? I think it was unavoidable that the price rises were bringing in far greater revenues and that money was, was ultimately coming from the NHS. There were also, interestingly, cases where companies internally raised concerns about the ethics or medical side of changing the price of drugs. There was a, an epilepsy drug that was sold by Pfizer and they struck a deal with a, a very small British company called Flynn Pharmaceuticals when the drug was, was debranded and went up in price. And there were emails that the competition watchdog obtained in that case in which Pfizer's medical director and other senior staff are concerned about the impact of doing this on patients if they maybe move to different products because with epilepsy drugs, they have what's called a narrow therapeutic index, which means there can be very meaningful differences even between the same rival generic versions of, of the same drug and patients can't be moved, for example, between a, a tablet and a capsule version without risking uh, a loss of control of their seizures and that can affect the ability to, to hold a driving licence and, and to work and all, and all sorts of things. So the upshot of that is that there were senior medical and scientific people at Pfizer who were worried that the policy impact of what was going on might be to make the lives of patients much more difficult. I can quote you a bit of one of these emails, which is from Pfizer's UK medical director, who wrote that they did not believe it was medically safe to switch between branded and generic AEDs, which are these type of drugs. Loss of seizure control would have a major impact clinically and also in terms of losing a driving license, which may have been regained after a long period free of seizures. But to which uh, another employee replied that it was an interesting dilemma. Agree that we have an obligation to do the right thing for patients, but equally we have obligation to do the right thing for business. That was the dilemma that was discussed in, in a number of emails and ultimately Pfizer struck this deal and, and the price of this drug rose dramatically. So, in fact, that dilemma, as was posed between the benefit of the patients and the benefit of the company and the benefit of the business, the business won. Pfizer will argue they are confident that what they did was in patients' best interests, but ultimately those concerns that were raised internally by very senior medical figures were overridden by those on the business side. Billy, why shouldn't I be very shocked by this? Well, I think you should be very shocked by this, but it's certainly fair to say the pharmaceutical industry doesn't have a good reputation and certainly didn't have a good reputation before the pandemic. And so I guess at one level, this is the sort of things that we've been seeing in TV shows and dramas and so on for years. But no, I think it is very shocking because of the, the human side of, of what these decisions mean. The thing that you've discovered, I think a listener might say, I really don't understand why the authorities didn't see this and didn't work it out. So my next question has two parts, really. The first is, why didn't they see it? 
And second, when you pointed it out, what did they do? So the authorities had been made aware of some of the specific price rises. And I think they put out a green paper at one point consulting on what they might do to sort that out. But they hadn't really taken any any meaningful action until we started putting these stories on the front page in the summer of 2016. The response then later that year was to table new legislation, which was passed in, in April of 2017 and which was specifically targeted at, at closing this debranding loophole and gave the health secretary the powers to intervene in these cases to impose lower prices if he or she believed that the NHS w- was being ripped off. But those powers haven't yet been used, which is something that has, has certainly puzzled doctors and, and patients groups for a number of years. What also happened, or, or what they did instead really, is refer a number of these cases to the Competition and Markets Authority, and they took up those cases and, and they've been working their way through ever since. And we've seen the fines this summer in, in two of those cases, and, and there are a few more likely to come. But the UK government had largely left it to the to the watchdog. Uh, it remains to be seen whether they now step in with civil cases, they can seek damages, compensation for the extra funds that were spent on, on these drugs following the, the CMA decisions. They can use that to bring civil cases. So it remains to be seen whether that happens. Why, you might be asking, hasn't the government forced companies involved in price gouging to hand back some of their profits? Since Billy's first articles on price gouging, many drugs have come down in cost. There are about 70 drugs that we identified in these stories. About half of those have, I think maybe up to two thirds now, have come down in price since those stories. And in some cases, it's because uh, other companies have come into the market for those drugs now, and, and that's driven prices down. In others, there have been interventions by regulators which have, have led to big price cuts. But there's still a lot of drugs that we're paying a lot more than we were 5, 10, 15 years ago. And they're old drugs. They, they should be cheap. And I mean, a key part of how we pay for medicines is that old medicines go generic and they become cheap and that frees up the funds to pay for the new ones. If the old ones are expensive, then, then the system doesn't work. Well, there are two phases to this, aren't there? The first concerns any future price gouging. Do you think we've got to the stage through what you've done and through what the regulators have done, whereby we're now clamping down on price gouging or not? So I think this specific loophole and this sort of debranding technique has stopped. I think once people realised if they did it, they were going to be on the front page of a newspaper. That was a big factor in that. And then obviously these fines that have now followed a number of years later are clear demonstration that it's not going to be profitable to do it, at least once they catch up with you. Has price gouging across medicine stopped? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, if prices more generally for older medicines are up in the last few years, and some of that is to do with supply issues from the pandemic and issues caused by Brexit and availability of delivery drivers and all sorts of things like that and, and the APIs from other countries. But uh, some of it will, will undoubtedly be opportunistic behaviour by companies, sometimes perhaps by wholesalers who are also an important part of the chain in all of this. The Department of Health remains very under-resourced in terms of looking for this type of behaviour. So I think it's undoubtedly the case that, it, that it's still going on and will still go on because there's so much money to be made. Okay, so some of it might have been inhibited, but a lot of it's still going on. The second stage, of course, is what's already happened. People have already made vast, excessive profits out of this. Is there any way of getting some of that money back? So you, there's a sort of two-stage process with that. One is the, is the CMA fines, uh, and those are very large sums and not always being paid by the same owners that were in charge when the behaviour took place, but certainly in some cases they are. Uh, And then the second stage is this possibility of civil action brought by the Department of Health to recoup the excess funds. And if they do that and they're successful, then that should be the amount that was spent extra and therefore the profit should vanish at that point and and be fully recouped. What happened to the company who increased the price of hydrocortisone 
with regard to that price increase and to whether or not they had to pay for what they'd done. So the fine for the company that were the legal owners of, of Warden McKenzie was about 220 million. And then there was another 40 million pounds in fines for other companies that had struck these deals to, to stay out of the market of that drug. That drug has now come down in price significantly. It's back to being a few pounds. I think it's just over three pounds for a, a packet of, of 30 at the, at the moment. But as we discussed, the original owners of Orton McKenzie sold up and got out in 2015. Amit Patel, who was the chief executive, has since had his own run-ins with the CMA on other pricing issues. He's actually been disqualified as a director for five years for his involvement on a different drug. And court records show he's also had a, a run-in with the tax ban over allegations of, of fraud involving bogus invoices and money that was routed via Dubai to buy apartments in New York and, and other purchases. But he, certainly his involvement in hydrocortisone hasn't resulted in any direct financial penalties for him. What impression do you get of Amit Patel, who is, if you like, the kind of symbolic figure at the centre of a lot of this? I think Amit Patel probably feels hard done by it in some senses because uh, certainly there were other companies that did this sort of thing to far more products than he did, but his was a very large increase and it got a lot of attention early on. The defence that his company have always given via sort of lawyers or PR advisors is that they did a service to the country and to patients by bringing through these new generics and that the generics market is designed to allow for prices to go up and down and, and that's how it works and ultimately uh, they were saving the NHS money. Sheer effrontery of it kind of drives you mad, doesn't it? Is there any way of quantifying what the cost to the NHS has been of price gouging in the last few years? Or is that just an impossible figure to compute? We know that the increase of about 70 drugs cost about 370 million in 2017, just for the excess amount. So the above what it would have cost under the previous prices. It was about 260 million the previous year. I think certainly if you top this up across the number of years it went on, it will be well over a billion, perhaps even two billion. Lyothirin in alone was an extra 115 million over nine years. Hydrocortisone was tens of millions of pounds extra a year. These were relatively small markets and relatively cheap drugs. But when you increase the price by 5,000, 10,000, I think in the worst case, 12,500%, then they become very large sums. Billy, you put that first story out in 2016, and one of the consequences was these fines levied by the CMA. How does that make a journalist feel when you go from a story to a result? It's very vindicating. I mean, it's essentially why we do this job, really. I mean, the, I think the point of investigative journalism is to the sort of all the cliches where you speak truth to power, ferret out things that, that people don't want you to know and uh, you know, do that to have a, a positive impact. And certainly some of these prices haven't come down. A lot of them have. But I think if I look back at the last five years and it's led to changing the law, a large number of regulatory investigations in the UK and, and abroad and, and now a number of very large fines, then that's certainly... Uh, a significant degree of satisfaction to be taken there. I mean, that's, I guess, balanced against knowing what the impact has been on all these patients who I've you know, now been speaking to for, for many years, and many of them are still struggling to get hold of some of these drugs, and it's still impacting their lives. And will they ever truly have a form of justice for that? Probably not. Mm-hmm. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times investigative reporter Billy Kenber. Billy's book, Sick Money, The Truth About the Global Pharmaceutical Industry, is published on Thursday. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. Maybe you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at times.co.uk. See you tomorrow for part two, when we'll be looking at the business of the COVID vaccines. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.